Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Valley podcast. Our guest today is Teal Swan. She was ranked number 19 on the Watkins Most Spiritually Influential Living People. In 2019, she's an author, a speaker, sort of a social media star. And what makes her really unique is that Teal was born with a range of extrasensory abilities, including clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience. She's the author of five books, creator of over 150 frequency paintings, and the famous Ask Teal YouTube series, which has gained around 73 million views to date. She Is the founder of a social movement called "The Principle of Authenticity," and she is the author of two books: "The Completion Process" and "The Anatomy of Loneliness." Now, it is the latter book, released in 2018, "The Anatomy of Loneliness," and ideas from this book that we're going to be discussing today on the Mind Valley Podcast. As you know, loneliness, and I've spoken about this before. According to some studies, is up 300 percent in the Western world. Loneliness can be As bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, it is worse for your well-being than obesity. Yet, so many of us, as we rise up the corporate ladder, as we move cities, as we discover ourselves, as we grow our careers, we feel lonely. I've been there. I've been in that situation, and I thought it would be an amazing idea to bring Teal onto a podcast to discuss this topic and how to find your way back to deep. Connection. So, Teal, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Teal, firstly, you have an incredible YouTube channel. Just for the people who might want to check you out, how do they find you on YouTube? <laughs> Just type in my name, Teal Swan. <laughs> T e a l s w a n n. You'll find her thousands of videos. But what made you write a book on the anatomy of loneliness? Well, I've been in this career for long enough, and traveled to all these different places in the world. And you know, loneliness was something that I struggled with so badly that I tried to commit suicide multiple times because of it. Actually, really? Yeah, it's one of those things where you're convinced you're in it. That's the definition of loneliness, right? You're convinced you're in it alone. So I was not really feeling like anyone else had this issue. I was looking around the world at people who seemed to have connection, belonging, family, and I'm the odd one out, right? But once I got into this line of work. It did not matter what culture I went to. Actually, it didn't matter what country I was in. Didn't matter whether it was male, female, what age. Everybody kept telling me the same thing, which is that they feel this miserable isolation and loneliness. So I started to see that it went far beyond me. And what do you think causes that miserable isolation and loneliness? And in your book, you describe it as the three pillars: separation, shame, and fear. Exactly, which is something that all people that I have met who have been socialized end up experiencing. So it's. In large part, the socialization experience that is causing this perception of separation. The story of separation it begins long, long before our birth. That's the most esoteric of the concepts that one has to understand to grasp the pillars of loneliness. That began when Source itself, if you can think of Source or whatever what people call God as united consciousness within this universe, thought the concept of I. That's when separation actually began. So that's before. Humans even existed. It's before this universe that we're currently living in, that we, you know, call the Milky Way and the galaxy that we're in. Before that was even created, 
But the concept of I, by definition, creates other. It denotes separation. So that's the first thing that we have to understand. Wait, the concept of I creates separation. I'm not sure I understood you there. You were talking about God, right? And God individuating into the multitudes of us. And that identity of I being the first glimpse of that separation. Is this what you meant? Yeah, so source itself thinks, what am I? Now, that concept denotes there's something other than it, which ultimately we know is not the case. There is nothing that is not united consciousness. Now, our minds have a hard time wrapping around that, of course, because we are individuated, our brains are not designed to comprehend collective consciousness. However, if you think about that united consciousness having no beginning, no end, no boundaries, there is nothing that is not it. So it is the concept of I, what am I, that creates that perception, however illusionary it will be, of a self. Now, the loneliness, loneliness actually has its origins in the feeling state that arose within that perception of oneself with nothing to relate to. So it's interesting for people to think about source itself as perceiving itself as lonely, but it could only perceive itself as lonely when it gave rise to the concept of I. Now, that question, what am I, was like a cancer. It automatically divides the united nature of the universe. There has to be me and other, at least me and empty space. And what cancer does is it creates this crack, basically, where there was one, there was two. And it's this out-of-control division process that began to occur, not only because the concept itself creates that crack within oneness, but also because now we suddenly have a motive to create more of us so that we can have relief to that loneliness. So this is like a huge esoteric concept to understand. And the reason that I presented this in the first part of the book is because we can see ourselves as fragments or fractals within source consciousness. That means that we mirror this original blueprint. That means that the fragmentation that happened within the universe is perfectly mirrored within ourselves, which is the more down-to-earth aspect of separation that we need to be aware of in ourselves, which is that our own consciousness is not united. Like I may call myself teal, which is implying a singularity. But within that consciousness of teal, I have got all kinds of different fragments of consciousness. And some of them are aware of other ones, and some of them are getting along, and some of them are not getting along. And it's this disunity and inherent separation with the fragments within me that are causing the majority of what I perceive as loneliness. So in other words, source realized at this point, God mind realized at this point, that that sensation of loneliness only occurs because of its own perception of separation within itself. So what does this mean for us? It means that genuine loneliness is the result of separation between fragmented aspects of our own consciousness. So that's deep, and I really appreciate that philosophical viewpoint. And I think it's intriguing how you laid it out. But how do we make that practical in our lives? Okay, practically speaking, if we can drop the concept of all the universal separation that I just discussed, I want you to look at your childhood. Now, what you will notice is that all people have trauma. And what trauma actually is, it's distress without resolve. So for us to overcome trauma, we have to be able to weave an experience into who we are to create a kind of continuity where it actually adds to our being instead of detracts from it. Now, obviously, most of us don't get this opportunity, especially when we're children. 
my common one that I love to give people is a scenario where you've got like a four-year-old girl and her daddy leaves. Now, obviously, we know that this throws usually mom into a scenario where now she has to be the primary breadwinner. She has to be gone more. She's already dealing with her emotional state. She doesn't know what to tell her daughter. There's nobody who's able to really sit down with this little girl and help her to resolve the trauma of daddy leaving. So what has to happen is coping. Coping, by definition, is not healing. It's not to resolve anything. It's not to integrate anything. It is simply to be able to get along with something you cannot change. Coping implies I can't change it. So it's an inherent state of powerlessness. Now, the human psyche has one primary way that it deals with things and copes, and that is fragmentation, the same as the universe at large. And what I mean by that is it has to split itself into a part that can deal with something and whatever the opposite part is. This is why we are full of all kinds of polarities. So in this type of a scenario, you've got this little girl who at four years old really does need daddy. This is the vulnerable part who needs the connection. It needs that closeness. It's very much a little girl. But she's got to split off from that part of herself. She has to suppress it, deny it, and disown it. It has to, in large part, become subconscious. While she identifies with the opposite polarity, which is whatever inside of her is capable of climbing up on those countertops and getting food for herself when no one else can, the part of her that can look at somebody and say, I don't need anyone, a highly independent self is what is necessary in that moment. But to do that, she has to split her consciousness and identify with one polarity to the rejection of the opposite. Now, this is going to create massive issues in her life in the future. And also, it has vast implication for loneliness. If she creates that separation between one part of her and another part, that gap between them, that distance, is actually what is creating the majority of our perceptions of loneliness, that feeling that we associate with it of separation and void. Obviously, the more that people do this, the more trauma they have, the more they split off from parts of themselves, the more gaps there are within their being, the more perception of separation, the more perception of isolation. Now, that's not the only thing that's going to happen. She's going to be living her life in a state that is out of alignment. Now, most of us in our adult life know what that feels like to be torn. We become accustomed to it, though. We're accustomed to the idea that we have to force ourselves to do certain things despite other aspects of us screaming. This is not a healthy state of being. But if we create these fragments, we will be bulldozing ourselves. And if we bulldoze ourselves, we will create an atmosphere of internal distrust. Now, that enhances loneliness even more because one of the other pillars of loneliness is fear. Like imagine me in a big truck, right? And I've got one part of me driving that truck and I'm like, no, I'm going to be in this relationship. And another part of me is like the protester who's standing on the floor like, no, we know what happened last time, Teal. That was a bad thing that happened last time, Teal. And I go, well, screw it. And I run straight over the other side. I have demonstrated that I can't trust myself. I have literally proven to myself that I will not take certain aspects of my consciousness into account when making a decision. You can't do that, by the way. You can't screw over a part of yourself without that registering in the whole as a huge self-betrayal. So I'm going to start walking around with this feeling like I can't trust myself and I don't know why. And that's the real reason why. Not only that, I'm going to be living my life from trauma, which means I'm in a state of determinism. So determinism. I think it's the most dangerous thing we've got going today. It's the opposite of free will. It's the opposite of choice. 
It's literally this thing happened to me. And as a result, I made this decision. And as a result of making this decision, I am now going to act in this way. And this kind of equation happens so quickly that there is no longer any conscious choice in the matter. I get frustrated. I kill my wife. I get frustrated. I do drugs. Like there's no conscious choice in this process. It's just me acting on whatever impulse has been embedded in my being based off of my experiences and what I made those experiences mean. So basically your life success as an adult can't occur when you're in this state of separation that occurred as a result of splitting your own consciousness because of trauma. Does that make sense so far? I get what you're saying. I'm not sure if I see the practical applications. All right. You have to, we as people, we need to see ourselves not as a singularity, but as a multitude. This is really hard for people to grasp until they start working with parts of their own consciousness. My favorite thing to do with people is to set up two chairs. I'll usually work with whatever they can perceive a kind of discord about. So you've got one side of you that, like I said before, wants the relationship, another side of you that doesn't want the relationship. For the sake of the exercise, when you sit down in one of those chairs, you are only in the part of you that wants the relationship. And then you stand back up. So you're like disidentifying with that aspect and looking at it, which, by the way, changes your whole experience of it. Then you're getting in the opposite chair. But when you do that, you are purely in that opposite consciousness. So if the first one we worked with was the one that wants the relationship, the one that really doesn't. So instead of allowing yourself to be blended, you're actually consciously piecing yourself out so as to become aware of that fragmentation. And by doing that, actually, you're trying to create the resolve between them or the uniting factor between them. I'd like to call this the third element. And you're not only doing that, you're creating what's called an aware ego. It is a disidentified and therefore chosen I. Every time you get into these different perspectives, but you see how you're stepping into the third perspective when you're observing them where you're not in the two chairs, you're standing up there looking at both of them. You're in an objective set point, an objective consciousness about them, which means you're not them, are you? If you can observe something, then you, by definition, can't be that thing. So you're creating an aware ego. It is the ego that understands, I am all of these fragments, but therefore I am not a single one of these fragments. That means that any resource that belongs to any of these fragments is something I can consciously choose. And that's when we move out of reactivity. That's when we're able to respond. That's when we're able to actually grasp concepts because we're in a very limited framework when we're identified with one of these aspects versus another. And our external reality, which is a mirror of our internal state, it begins to mirror our unity instead of disunity. We stop seeing all the conflict externally. Because we have re-owned aspects that we have rejected. See, if we've rejected parts of ourselves, they show up as antagonistic elements in the external mirror of our reality. That stops when we re-own them. So that person that you've hated your whole life, once you own the aspect of yourself that is being mirrored as that person, that antagonistic nature of that relationship no longer exists. For the most part, even though you can do this type of parts work, and it's the thing that I think actually creates the biggest impact in terms of overcoming isolation, there are some real easy basic things that we can be focused on to enable us to feel a sense of connection in the world again. And a huge portion of it has to do with our own relationship to ourselves and our inner parts. What I perceive to be one of the most dysfunctional aspects of the spiritual field particularly 
is the concept that we should be focusing at the resolution of loneliness in an individual way. And that's what most people are really looking in the wrong direction for. And I know this sort of upsets people when I say this, but in the spiritual field, what we have a huge portion of is people who have had disordered relationships. I mean, for the most part, you don't go looking to God or looking outside yourself or outside your family circle to get your needs met unless your social circle isn't meeting those needs. Now, it's tempting when we have had so much pain around connection to just try to find some way to transcend needing it in the first place. And when I did as much research as I could do, both in body, out of body about this, that came out real front and center as one of the things we've got to really change about our mentality is that it is possible to transcend your way out of loneliness by yourself. There's something you can do so that it doesn't matter if you're on a mountain by yourself for years upon years, you will never perceive your own loneliness because it's a denial of ourselves as a species. And the more aware and awake you become, the less you actually deny your own needs. That's not healthy. It's the path of asceticism. So what we need to do first and foremost is to accept that we are a herd or a group species. It is no more dysfunctional for us to expect ourselves to thrive and to be okay and to get over loneliness without people than it is for us to walk up to a deer in the middle of a herd and say, this is really dysfunctional. What you're doing right now, like probably need to just like go learn to be by yourself. We would never do that to another species, but we do it to ourselves and we do it to each other. And this has got to stop. So the focus that I want people to have is to take their attention off of trying to not need connection and instead get really, really, really good at it. Very good at relationships. Now, the first thing we need to start doing is to stop playing zero-sum games. This is the primary way that we as physical humans ruin our relationships. And the definition of a zero-sum game is I win, you lose. If you play that game in a relationship, the relationship will end. No exceptions. It's no different than a business deal. Now, people don't want to accept that, of course. We'd love romantic relationships to be different than business deals, but it isn't. If you own a company and I own a company and I play a zero-sum game with you, there is no deal. But we do this with our relationships all the time. In business, we look for the fair trade, the partnership, which is win-win. But in our relationships, we often don't. I was just talking to Catherine Woodward Thomas, who wrote the book Conscious Uncoupling. She said one of the big lies of the modern world is that after you leave a relationship, you hate on the other person. So that's an important realization. So zero-sum game by definition, ruins trust. If you want the more scientific, straightforward definition of trust, it's to rely upon someone to capitalize on your best interests. Now, if I'm playing a zero-sum game where I win and you lose, I'm not doing that. And so quite literally, you can't trust me. It's not even fair for me to ask you to. And what psychologists have right is that trust is the single most important element of a relationship. So literally, you should be safeguarding the trust in the relationship above all else. People will stay in relationships where there's trust. So we got to stop playing zero-sum games. This means that what we've got to do is to accommodate the other person's best interests. When we get into that relationship, regardless of what relationship it is, with our kids, with a friend, with a partner, it's I commit to taking your best interests as part of my own best interests. Now, it's best if you're in a relationship, obviously, who's going to do the same thing back. That's the recipe for a real great relationship. <laughs> You know, we know it's more difficult to get people to behave in certain ways. So I like that idea. 
get rid of the zero sum game and ensure that all relationships are win-win relationships. Yes. And every decision you make within that relationship, what we're looking for is the third element, the thing that unites us, the thing that will make it so that both of us feel a yes for something. And then the other thing we got to look at is that sometimes there's incompatibility. That also bothers people when I talk about this, because we would love to believe that where there's love, there's always a way. That is total crap. It is as crap to say that as it is to say that if a bird loves a fish, there's always a way. What do you mean by incompatibility? Incompatibility is a difference that by definition is antagonistic in nature. It's non-complementary. You cannot create a state of harmony when you introduce these two features to each other. For example, you've got a woman who has a deep need for intimacy in a relationship, needs a man to have his energy becoming into the house and towards her. If this woman marries a guy in the army, she is screwed. And so is he. And it's not that one or the other is bad. It's just that some people are incompatible with each other. Exactly. And our failure to accept this is why there's so much misery on the planet. And the other thing is, is that if you're in an incompatible relationship, meaning that both of your desires are creating a disharmony in each other, then the tendency we have is to corrode each other's self-worth. Yes, that actually makes a ton of sense. Prior to talking to you, I was having a similar conversation, as I said, with Catherine Woodward Thomas, and she mentioned the same thing. She said, part of the American idea of divorce or ending a marriage is that you heal by corroding the other person. So it's so wonderful to hear you echo those same ideas. Catherine, of course, says that this is a great myth and it's not the way true conscious relationships operate. Oh, yeah. So if I'm in an incompatible situation, let's say you and I are in a relationship and we're in an incompatible situation, then chances are I'm going to try to change you to be more compatible with me by telling you that the way you are is wrong and you got to fix it. It's the classic pattern you'll see in relationships. And it happens regardless of whether it's romantic relationship, friendship relationship, parents and children is probably the most common, actually. First, I'm going to make you feel like crap about whatever incompatible aspect you have. And then I'm going to come in as your rescuer. And my whole focus is going to be fixing you. So if I want a really committed partner and you actually want a lot of autonomy, I'm going to make you wanting autonomy wrong first. And so you don't feel good about yourself that way. And now I'm going to fix you to be somebody who can connect. So if we get into this, the relationship's just done. That's the type of relationship where you're like, what the hell happened? I don't know whether they're right, whether I'm right, whether I'm messed up. I feel totally messed up. You know? So we have got to accept the incompatible nature of our relationships, and that makes it a lot easier to stay out of these zero-sum games. It's a lot easier to stay out of a zero-sum game when there's not massive conflicts all the time between needs and desires. And it really sort of makes me laugh because in the Indian cultures, I mean, there's a lot of negative aspects to arranged marriage, but there's also a lot of positives. And one of the positives is we tend to be attracted to people who mirror our aspects that we have suppressed. So if I have polarized to an aspect of myself that doesn't want a relationship, really, that needs a lot of autonomy, I've suppressed the part of me that loves intimacy. I'm going to be attracted to people who are grade five clingers is what will happen. <laughs> so one of the things to be said about arranged marriage is that because the match is not being made based on attraction, usually, your likelihood of falling into the pot of incompatibility is lower, actually. That's funny. That's an interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. So the second thing we need to focus on is intimacy. And yet again, because when we're addressing loneliness, this is not just about partnerships. This is about every relationship in our life. We need to be developing intimacy. And what that is, is it's I see you, I feel you, I hear you, I understand you. 
It is to really bring someone into your embodiment and your being. Now, I have some more aggressive methods of teaching people to do this, methods where they get completely out of their own perspective, completely into the perspective of whatever person they're trying to develop this you know, intimacy with. And it's only by really understanding someone that we can have a good relationship. So one of the biggest mistakes that we make is that we try to love people instead of trying to understand them, which is why, you know, one of the suggestions that I'm making in this book, and it's something real easy that the listeners who are listening today can do, is to drop the concept of trying to love them. Stop trying to love people. Try to understand them instead. I got an example of why this works. Let's picture a little four-year-old that just loves jellyfish. That's his favorite pet. So his parents get him a jellyfish. He loves this thing. And so he pulls it out of the water. He snuggles it in a little blanket every day. How long does it take before that thing dies? That's because he loves it and doesn't understand it. If you really come to understand things, loving it isn't difficult. You know exactly what it needs and therefore you know what needs to meet. It takes the guesswork out of the equation. It makes me laugh a little bit. This is what makes me laugh is that with anything else in our life besides a person that we're in a relationship with, we love to become an expert on it. If we like surfing, we become obsessive about learning about surfing. We go to the people who are going to tell us how to be the best surfer. We buy the best surfing wax. We research all about surfboards. But when it comes to a person in our life, we don't do this. And then we're like, I don't know what went wrong. That's a major aha point. Of everything you've said so far right now, that really resonates with me as a big insight. So thank you for sharing that. Let me do a quick recap of where we are right now. We started out wanting to talk about how to find your way back to connection. But, you know, for those of you listening, these podcast conversations don't often go in a linear path. I thought that we were going to be talking more about how to connect with other people. But really, you went a little bit deeper than that. And I appreciate that. You spoke about how the root cause of feeling disconnected is the disassociation within ourselves with the multitude of our individuated selves. You get the example of us being in a relationship and having two different selves, one that wants the relationship and one that wants to leave it for freedom or for whatever other feeling. You spoke about how to truly then get connected. We need to recognize this component, but we also need to bring in a series of mental models, models of reality that will help us become better at relationships. You spoke about the idea of win-win relationships, of negating that age-old rule that when we end a relationship with someone, we have to vilify them, or we have to bitch about them, or we have to see the ending of a relationship as something where you're meant to extract from your partner. I really like that rule of win-win relationships because it so echoes the work of Catherine Woodward Thomas, who wrote the book Conscious Uncoupling, which is a book I recently finished, and I was recently interviewing her for the similar podcast. And then the second thing you spoke about was intimacy. And I love this example that you gave of how we go deep into understanding anything we are passionate about, such as surfing, but we don't do that for the person we are passionate about. That was beautifully presented. So as we adopt these models of reality and bring them into our life and we become better at connection with the people around us, what next? Any other closing words of wisdom? You know, what's interesting for the closing words of wisdom, I'm looping back towards the original statement. We're going to do a circle here. Ready? The reason to focus at loneliness at that level of, you know, the separation within yourself is not so that you don't need people. It's simply to make your external relationships with other people better. 
So the whole reason that I feel like people need to get this, especially in the spiritual field, the whole reason to come more into alignment with yourself, the whole reason to start to develop a better relationship between these parts within yourself, right? The whole reason to do that isn't so that you don't need people. The reason to do that is so that your external relationships with other people start to mirror the improved relationship that you have with these parts of yourself. Ooh, I like that. I like that. That is profound. Thank you for sharing that. So thank you, Teal. This is one of those podcasts that didn't go in the direction I expected, but you ended up speaking at a level, at a layer that was far deeper and more profound, and it was exactly what I needed to hear. What I got out of this, folks, was a couple of really beautiful principles on what to keep in mind when we go into our next deep relationship. Thank you so much, Teal, for sharing these. You know, as someone who recently went through a divorce, I would say that I wish that 16 years ago, maybe someone had sat me down and explained some of these ideas to me. And I say that with humility from someone who has made mistakes in this field. So thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on the Mind Valley podcast. So for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review. And in the review, mention Teal if something that you heard today touched you in some meaningful way. Thank you all. And thank you, Teal. Thank you. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.